0: Texas. I'm your host, W.F. Strong, and today we talk Julius Caesar. He was a Roman general and politician who played a critical role in the events that led to the demise of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar had a significant and lasting impact on the world in a number of ways. First of all, he was a skilled military strategist and leader. He played a key role in expanding the Roman Empire. He had literary contributions. He is known for his literary works, including his commentaries on the Gaelic Wars and Civil Wars, which provide valuable insights into the history and politics of his time. Caesar had cultural influence. His legacy in this regard has had a lasting influence on culture and art around the world. Julius Caesar had an influence on language. He played a significant role in the development of the Latin language. Many words and phrases that he introduced have become part of the English language, such as venue, status quo, and etc. And his uh, friend Cicero gave us syllabus. Caesar was also Influential in science and mathematics, a patron of the arts and sciences, and he supported the development of mathematics and astronomy. He is credited with the introduction of the leap year system and the Julian calendar, which was the dominant time system for 1600 years and still has influences on our calendars today via the names, including his, which gives us July Overall, Julius Caesar had a lasting and far-reaching impact on the world, and his contributions have continued to be felt for all these centuries. Joining me today is my friend and fellow classicist, Lindsay Powell, to help introduce us to the fascinating life of Julius Caesar. Lindsay, you may recall, walked us through the life of Marcus Aurelius about a year and a half ago. That podcast remains the second most popular podcast of the Beyond Texas series. Lucky for us, Lindsay has just published a book on Julius Caesar. He edited the book and wrote the introduction, and he'll explain the unique appeal of this newly re-released biography. Welcome back, Lindsay. You've just published your book on Julius Caesar, right?
1: I have, yes. I was actually invited to edit the text. It's quite interesting. Uh, The publisher had an idea to, to reissue, a book um, by General Jacob Abbott, who was an American. Mm-hmm. He was a pastor in, in the last century, actually you know, the last century before that, which would be the, the, the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, this man turns out to be an historical figure in his own right within American history. He was a prolific author, and he wrote about... Uh, very well-known figures from history, Julius Caesar being one, with a sort of didactic mission. The idea was to school young American children, young adults, into what were good behaviors, what were good deeds, and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, as it turns out, his scholarship is pretty good. Um, so we decided we we're going to go to to re-issue that. I wrote the introduction. And then on the back of that, uh, we decided to actually put a number of sources which were actually from Julius Caesar himself. So the reader gets a sort of orientation piece from me, Jacob Abbott's biography, which is actually very good, and then, and then large extracts of writings by Julius Caesar, so you get to hear his voice in addition to this American from the 19th century.
0: How wonderful. And and this, yeah. is, this is on uh, Amazon now?
1: Uh, you can pre-order it right now, and I think you can get the Kindle book already.
0: Okay, great, great. I will, I will get it. I've just, I've just finished reading uh, a couple of uh, biographies. Well, actually, a history of, of just Rome. Uh, you know, a, a kind of sweeping history of Rome, and then, uh, and then a, a biography on Julius Caesar himself. Okay. And uh, I guess out of all the ancient world, uh, you know, if we had to talk about the people who are the most famous in history, I guess Julius Caesar would would probably be the most famous from the Greco-Roman world.
1: I I, I think you're right. Uh, And in fact, this is exactly the point that Jacob Abbott wrote in in, in the first paragraphs of his book. He said, basically, there are three towering figures of the ancient world. It would be Alexander the Great representing the Greeks, the Mm -hmm. Macedonians. It would be Hannibal... Because of his great uh, reputation as, uh, as as the man who was able to terrify Rome and Julius Caesar of of the Roman world,
0: absolutely. Um, and, and then, of course, you have the the great intellectuals like Aristotle and Socrates, who were also very, very well known. But I think probably Julius Caesar has the reputation in the modern world uh, in a way that the average person at least knows that he was a great general, he was a uh, highly respected leader, and he was assassinated. Brutally,
1: it is. It, it is quite remarkable, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you know what? I, I have a theory as to, to why that might actually be. And, and it's it actually it probably something that you appreciate, someone who's in the communications scholarship business, is is that his reputation was not only founded by him, mm-hmm. but also by his adopted son and heir, a man we know as Caesar Augustus, mm-hmm. and it what what to just to kind of like. To turn the story on its head, I'm going to start with the end rather than the beginning here, is that with the assassination of Julius Caesar, the will comes out, it turns out that the heir to his estate and his name, and that's very crucial, the name Caius Julius Caesar is adopted then by his heir, who in turn will will, will change his name several times and end up by being called Caesar Augustus. Um, he decided that, in fact, he was going to control what books and speeches of Julius Caesar would actually be allowed in public circulation. And that's why we get basically his commentaries on the Gallic War and his commentaries on the Civil War. But all his comedies, all his speeches, all his uh, books of jokes and this sort of thing, and some of his uh, polemical works, not a word of those survives. And I think it comes down to a certain element of suppression. Um, that, that went on in the decades after he was assassinated, because it suited Augustus to be able to say, "This man was my relative. Look how great a man he was." And it would be slightly undermined if it was filled with books of comedy <laughs> and a few jokes. You, know? you see how that works?
0: <laughs> yes, I see. It's a, it's a <laughs> brilliant uh, image sculpting. You know, it's wonderfully mm. done. And if you, I, I suppose, out of all the ancient, out uh, of the Roman world. The the two people who left us the the greatest volume of writing, um, except other than you know, Marcus Aurelius, is uh, Cicero, who uh, provided us with great histories. Really, wouldn't know so much if Cicero hadn't just been a, a, a you know voluminous writer and letter writer and all that. And somehow all that got preserved. And and then Julius Caesar had, uh, you know, quite a great volume, too. And both of them were schooled in in Greece, right,
1: when they were young? Yes, absolutely. Yes, and part of the Roman education system, in fact, was that you'd learn oratory rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, in fact, uh, Julius Caesar, I think, actually shared the same uh, tutor as Caesar. I think his name was Apollodorus, if I've got this right. Yes. Uh, Of Rhodes. Uh, and in fact, it was quite funny. On the way to Rhodes, he actually got uh, captured by pirates, which is a story we can, we can look at and <laughs> investigate because it shows the, the early character of this man who becomes this man that we all know now as Julius as this fearless, very bold sort of character. And, um, what's interesting about Cicero, Tippett, is his letters. That's what makes him very different. He's writing personal letters to friends and colleagues and other people he's trying to basically ingratiate himself with, uh, but they were also curated. And what's very interesting about Cicero um, as an individual, and, and, and he uh, was, was uh, a man with an eye on the future. It's it said that uh, he wrote effectively this, that, I'm not so interested in what people of the next couple of years will think of me, it's what the next 500 years will think of me. <laughs> I think he would be tickled, absolutely tickled that here we are 2,000 years later, not only talking about it, but reading his words, um, and and his mission would be fulfilled, and and Julius Caesar the same, but for the reasons I said earlier, was being curated on his behalf of are his, are his basically his military commentaries. So what we get to see with Cicero is this wonderful human being, with his hopes and fears, with his prejudices, uh, with his political ambitions, and his manipulative ability. It's very mm-hmm. interesting. So he kind of manipulated as far as he could um, Julius Caesar's heir because he thought. I think we can use this man, and then we can just we then eject him. And he got that bit wrong. He misjudged his opponent. So just because this man is 1920, and I'm the older guy here, uh, I know what's wise, I know what I can get away, with. but he'd, un- he'd underestimated uh, Octavian uh, Augustus.
0: Yeah, and it's sad that uh, Cicero wanted to save the republic... And and then I mean that was his big dream was to save the republic.
1: And well well see he would claim that he did. He actually said so in sixty three B C well, well, he he's did. one of the two consuls uh, the consuls are the most senior magistrates of the Roman Republic and he exposes or, 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 or basically an attempt at a coup d'etat is brought to his attention and he basically an, assumes that the idea that the, it's his job to protect the res publica and ever after that he, he claims that he was the defender of it. It's, it's his brilliant moment in time. The problem in doing that however he actually basically uh, sent a man to an executed a man that hadn't got the fair trial and you're not allowed to do that uh, Roman citizen is allowed a time in a day in court um, and and this man basically didn't get it uh, so so in fact he was hounded by this and yet he actually went into exile. For a period of time, uh, in order there was a, a Roman um, who would committed an egregious crime, and he was in a man of high status, to be a Christian senator. was was not typically flogged or whipped in public. He was allowed to sneak out of town. Uh, nobody was allowed to, set, to feed him bread, water, or salt. I think, for the conditions, and he had to go far away, typically go to Greece, and then when the when the times right, he might be allowed back. But um, Cicero, because of some good but sometimes bad judgments, found himself on the wrong side of the law, and his claim always: I saved the republic.
0: Well, and even those uh, the assassins of uh, Julius Caesar thought they were saving the republic, and all they did was seal forever the the Caesars and the long dictatorships that followed
1: and the funny thing is they didn't realize that <laughs> uh, and, and what's what's fascinating I, I think is that everybody's heard of uh, uh, Marcus Junius Bruce's they've heard of Cassius Longinus typically because we've studied the Shakespeare plays. And I think this is what makes this whole character, Julius Caesar, really interesting. If you're an English speaker and you've been to school where you studied Shakespeare, this is how we learn about him. It's not through Roman histories. It's through a 16th century English playwright. That's actually He got a lot of the character right. I, I think this is one thing. Like, I, I absolutely adore Shakespeare. I was, I was raised on it. Uh, one of my favorite places in the world is Shakespeare's Globe in London, where you can stand in a in a, in a Theatre in the Round, which is an exact replica of the old uh, Globe Theatre. Um, and it was actually an American, by the way, who had the idea to rebuild it. So once again, credit to Americans for doing this. Um, and uh, the, the the point about the, the Shakespeare character, he was presented as being a very haughty, very sort of fearless, um, quite frankly, unpleasant individual who, of course, is assassinated. And the rest of the story is about how uh, Marcus Julius Brutus and Cassius um, go to Philippi, Philippi and, and actually fight a war after being hounded by the the, um, the person whose mission this is this is the heir of Julius Caesar sets his personal mission to hunt these men down and hold them to account for the assassination. Mm-hmm. And of course, he wins. He actually succeeds in doing that. But all the while, that this this big ghost-like spirit of Julius Caesar, even in the second half of the play where he's, he's dead, the ghost of Caesar appears. <laughs> Um, So it's extraordinary in the sense that the ghost of Caesar is still around.
0: He did a great job of building his own image from the time he was very young. He seemed to have a sense of this. It's almost like he lived in our time. He says, I'm going to manipulate the public opinion. I'm going to build my image in a way that will give me strength later with the people.
1: I, I, it, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's something that we, we live in a, a world of media, publicity and uh, advertising. There, there was no such thing in, in Roman days, but, but they would have understood the concept. Yes. Um, the whole the whole thing um, – yeah, so, so to, to give it some scale, right? So we're talking about Rome in the first century BC. Its population – maybe a million people, maybe not. Mm-hmm. A very large number of those people are made up of slaves, right? So those people have no voice. They're basically the equivalent of cars and washing machines uh, in modern you, society.
0: What do you think? Like like 80% were slaves?
1: 60%? Quite possibly.
0: Quite I, possibly. I, I, me- I remember reading that they, they once said, we should make all the slaves wear uniforms. And then they said, uh, well, that would be a bad idea because then the slaves would realize how many of them there are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they would say, "Hey, and, and, and you know, <laughs> we're, we're more than half."
1: <laughs> well, and, and this this had real real. Value, but so for example, so if you speed forward into Roman history by a couple of decades, uh, in AD 9, which is famous, ultimately for the famous disaster at Teutoburg, which which is a whole different story, we could we could have a podcast just on that. But the point is that um, the, the emperor Augustus has decided they actually want to annex the land on the other side of the Danube, uh, which which we which we know was um, which was, was basically. Uh, Unconquered territory. And in order to raise this army, he went to the cavalry that they had, auxiliaries as they were called, who basically came from the Dalmatian-Croatian area of what we now call Europe. It was then called Illyricum. And exactly that happened. When these men assembled in order to go on the long the long ride up the road to get to the Danube, they realized how many of them there were. And they actually turned to each other, the, the two leaders, they both named Bartow, as it turns out. And they thought, what on earth are we defending the honor of Romans for? We should be defending our honor. And in fact, they, told, they actually they went into rebellion for three years. Illyricum was, in fact, the subject of, of a, a, a rebellion, a very, very serious one. In fact, the Romans deployed an enormous force to actually reduce it so your point is very very well made and it was this really an easy holding society together in a sense by by the year it's you know it was a wolf right um and and it, it, it's something that we don't give any thought to because thankfully we don't have slaves in our society well i hope we don't but, but we don't um and 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 america's gone through this 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 whole process of trying to reconcile from having a heritage of slavery, but for the Romans it was a very different relationship. All ancient societies were basically slave owning, and it was totally normal normal for a household to have multiple slaves doing lots of different specialised tasks. They would be in and down the streets. They'd be doing shopping for the master of the house. They'd be doing washing. They would be cleaning and the sweeping. They would be making the hair and the polishing the nails and all that sort of stuff of, of, of the ladies of the house. So it's extraordinary to think that people did that sort of work and the punishments. If you didn't do it, could be pretty dreadful. Um, and Caesar, some, of course, were made as gladiators.
0: And Caesar, I understand, had the reputation for buying particularly beautiful slaves.
1: Well, rich people generally did, yeah. uh, and there was a market for um, sort of people who come from other cl- countries. So, for example, if you're a person that meets um, you would want to have probably someone who was skilled in medicine on your staff. which typically meant you went over to Greece and you got a Greek uh, medicus. Yeah. Uh, and that would then be the ability if you'd actually maintain your health or that of your family or your friends. Um, You would probably want to have, if you could do, like Cicero did, uh, someone who could actually write. So you could actually have this person act as your secretary. Um, Above and beyond that, there would be slaves who would actually tend to your personal dress and your uh, morning bath routine, if you like. And let's be frank, I mean, some of them were sexless. Uh, that, they, that their beauty was used, and it was used in, in a very different sort of way. That I'm sure would probably raise lots of eyebrows to your listeners. Um, but, but, but the Roman and the Greek attitude towards sex and sexuality was very different than ours is today. Um, and again, if you overlay on that that, that the understanding, of a slave is basically an appliance, a device. Um, and, 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 and if you see that that the world through those eyes, you can see how you can have that relationship and not have any feelings. Now flip side of that is a lot of Roman masters actually develop romantic and love interests with their slaves. And in fact, we know there are lots of examples where Romans would actually free the slave woman and actually then marry that woman. So so the, the one thing that's really quite remarkable about Roman society that, that's different from all other ancient societies is there is a there is a process in law, it's called manumission, which enables a slave person to either save to buy themselves out of these of the, their agreement, effectively, and they they become free, or the master, as a gift, can actually manumit the slave. This process where they they have a, a wand and so and, and 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 they they officially announce to the world in front of witnesses, and then is put into book. So that person then becomes what's called a libertus, a freed man, or liberta, or a freed woman. And when their children grow up, there's a possibility that they, in fact, can actually qualify for Roman citizenship. So what's amazing about the Roman society is as it develops over the centuries, more and more of the population are actually from slave origins. Hmm. Um, And it's absolutely fascinating. This is why, in a sense, Rome can endure for about a thousand years, because it reinvents itself constantly um and and, and it's it, it's, an, it's a, a part of Romans society that we sometimes ignore that the Romans were actually open to these sorts of ideas that, uh, that that injecting new blood into society um can actually be beneficial I mean there are conditions there are laws that control all of this mm-hmm. not least of which you said the sheer numbers of slaves would have been somewhat of a shock but but there was a way for those slaves to actually live in hope that they at some point can be free so you see how that might change the relationship
0: absolutely. You said that uh, when Julius went to Greece uh, as a young man to study, he got he got kidnapped by pirates. And mm. uh, that's a great story because I, I want you to tell that story because I think it's the first time that he realizes that uh, this is the beginning of a, a beautiful myth of, about me. Well, not, not myth in the sense that it's untrue, but uh, in the sense that it's a larger-than-life story. Uh, that that puts him in a Herculean model, you know, that he has done something <laughs> incredible here That that, that is just and, and it is, I mean, that story alone w- would make a great movie.
1: There was a rumor, I think, that a fairly, fairly well-known director actually was going to make a movie exactly about that scene. I don't mm-hmm. know what's happened to it, but um, you've got to remember that, that we're talking 75 BC here, and, and if we work on the assumption that Julius, he was born in 100 BC and mm-hmm. there's some arguments where that's 100, 100, exactly. So he's a 20 five-year-old, right? And and in the Roman political system, He's still a young whippersnapper, right? Mm-hmm. He's, still, he's still in the very early grades of working through the public, what they call the cursus honorum, which is the, the public service ladder. And, and and you have to actually work through it to a very uh, consistent uh, uh, qualification schedule of age and wealth. And you get voted, so there's competition for these positions. And, and it's, it's quite possible that you may actually may not succeed. Well, Julius Caesar's just working his way up. He's been uh, working with the Praetor, the, the, the governor of of Asia, which is basically what we now consider to be Turkey. And um, he completes his assignment, having done some good things and some things that actually, and we can talk about this in a second, uh, where where another side of his reputation is laid out. But to get back to the pirates, um, he's actually finishing his assignments. He leaves, as I understand it, um, um, uh, I think it's Miletus. And the, the, the ship that he's on is basically surrounded by Kilikian pirates, and Kilikian pirates are people that live in the southeastern corner of, of what we now think of as Turkey. And they, they basically kidnap him. So they take him a, a, away. And what these people do to make a living is they, they make their living by ransoming not only the, the, the equipment and the, the merchandise they steal on the ship, but in this particular case, the person. And Julius Caesar isn't alone. He's actually got his entourage with him. So he's got his doctor. He's got some manservants, some slaves, really, and some other friends. So we have to imagine that Julius Caesar is, is always surrounded by people. And some of them have been quite close. So so this, this is this is another dimension. But you have to imagine these people, we think of being solitary. In fact, aren't. They, they, they bring a little kind of a group of close people with them. And the story is that, that so they, 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 they land on, on this island um, and they say, OK, so we are... We're going to have to uh, raise a ransom here. So they used in those days talents, which was a, a weight of silver. And I think they said, um, 30 talents. That's what we're going to ask for your release. And he laughs, rolls his eyes and basically says, you don't know who you're dealing with, my friends. 50, that's what I'm worth fifty talents. <laughs> and I calculated it was worth about seven hundred and sixty thousand dollars. <laughs> so, you know, oh, wow. modest by today's standards, but a big number by them. And these, these, these pirates who've never dealt with an individual who would be so boldy, should we put it that way, um, said, Okay, fine, fifty talents it is, you go and get your money and he's dispatches some of his friends and they go off and they gradually raise money from these cities along the Turkey, what we think of the Turkish but then Asian coast and in the meantime um, 20 days goes by he's writing speeches, he's, he's doing what he does, he's just being Julius Caesar he's reciting things they, 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 he gets involved in competitions, he, he basically uh, tells these people off he, he tells them he's the boss but they're not the people and they just, they just don't understand this man at all and there comes a point at which he says, you know what, I'm going to tell you this is that one day I'm going to come back here. And basically, I'm going to execute every single one of you. And they thought he was joking. Mm-hmm. So they laugh. And then the agreement is they, they find the money, these, these 50 talents. He says, I would like some hostages from your side so we can give them to the, the cities that have actually put the capital up. So at least they, they, they know that it's good, good credit good credit here and that the money is released. And then what happens is Julius Caesar is now released. The first thing he does, he goes back to Miletus, raises a fleet. So he goes around the harbor and says, you know, I, I, for this sum of money, I need your ship. Can we have it within, within a matter of days? The pirate ships are still floating around in this bay. He basically goes off with his new little fleet, captures the pirates, has them thrown into jail in Pergamon. And then he goes back to the Praetor of Asia and says, I want justice here. I want these guys' obstacles. Well, the Praetor actually sees, hold on, how much money do he get? he says 50,000 pounds. So he thinks if he sells these these, these pirates, that he can make some money of himself. Well, Julius Caesar's mighty cross about this, because you think, yeah, come on, there's my name here, my reputation. What he then does, he goes behind the Praetor's back, actually breaks these people out of jail, and crucifies them. Because these people were supposed to be cried and wrestled. So he does that. And what, what, the, the end of the story is effectively that he has, he's kind of broken the law in doing that. He's not supposed to do this. But he's established this reputation as basically someone who is totally in command of his own circumstances and is prepared to take on great risks. And what's interesting about the story is the only person it could probably have come from is Julius Caesar. And there are about five or six different sources for this story. Uh, Plutarch being one of them, and Appian is another. And, and it's interesting when you compare them. I just literally wrote an article, this last month about this very thing for ancient uh, warfare magazine, in which I'm the news editor. And and it's very interesting that you can see there are common elements in each of the tellings, but there are subtle little details which one includes and one excludes. And, and what we can see is the young 25-year-old Julius Caesar already controlling the narrative. I want to be seen as fearless, fast, and I want to be someone that can negotiate. Um, and you see those sorts of things coming all the way through the rest of his life. So, to your original point, this, this is this self-born publicist in action. He's only
0: 25. <laughs> yes. And, but how did he uh, publicize this story? Did he write this and then, you know, do like Cicero, just send copies around to people so everyone would know? Uh, how did he reveal the story?
1: Well, again, okay, you see, So you'll remember our initial conversation, which, about what we know of Julius Caesar was controlled by his heir, Augustus, quite likely that he would have written that that the Romans were kind of into pamphleteering in a way actually like the the colonials were here back in the 18th century. And um, he certainly would have seen the benefit of doing that. But the other thing, he had all of these friends. So they were, first of all, the people that he would borrowed the money from, right? So these people were totally grateful for him because what was very interesting about this is that Julius Caesar's father, whose name was also Caius, Julius Caesar, was in fact the governor himself of Asia at one point. So they already had a relationship with him. And they looked at Julius Caesar and thought, ah, oh boy, he, he, could be, he could represent us in Rome. He could do great things for us. And Julius Caesar did. Yet he actually was very grateful to the Malaysians for their help and had a sort of special relationship all the way through his professional career with those people, those people would have been a few delighted to have actually spread the story because they were associated with the good news. And there's all his friends. So his friends are going back and people love to tell a good story. <laughs> they and really do. you can imagine how that would work.
0: And he got all his money back. I mean, he, he <laughs> so he paid yes, he the ransom and went back and got his ransom back and arrested the pirates and put them in jail and then crucified them, not just killed Absolutely. them but crucified them.
1: No, and the reason why they do that, by the way, so crucifixion for, for your listeners is a terrifying, awful uh, punishment. The, the, the crucifixion is, is is a design primarily as a humiliation. Crooks is Latin for cross. And it doesn't have to be necessarily a man-made cross. You can actually nail a person to a tree trunk. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 it's a pretty awful way. And what you do is you, you hammer nails in, into the wrist and actually into the heel. So, so our normal way of you see the, the cross of Christ with, um, in, with, the, with the nail through the hand. No, they're actually done through the wrist because you've got mm-hmm. two bones there, and then you've got the muscle and then the actual bone the hand, and that's a much more secure way of doing it. We know how they were hitched in in the ankles because one has been found in Israel. Uh, there, there's a heel bone, an ankle bone, with a nail to it. And what oh. we know is, into the into the the, the long member of the of, of the cross, they would they would uh, basically attach a piece of wood that stuck out. They would put your ankles one either side of it, and then they would bang nails through. Oh. So the idea is that you're hanging there. With your, with your knees slight bent to the left or the right side, you are basically suffocating, in mm. agonizing pain. And you try to shift one side or the other to actually relieve the pain. But all you're doing is causing more pain in another part of your body. You bleed to death, you suffocate to death, and it's awful. Um, so this is a punishment reserved basically to people who commit sedition, who are basically what the Romans called um, uh, people who are outlaws. And there's a Roman Latin word called Latronicium, which, uh, which effectively is for all of these crimes of sedition, slave rebellion, and these sorts of things. Romans could, Roman citizens themselves could not be crucified, so it was non-Romans, and basically people of lower status, and pirates were exactly those people.
0: Hmm. Is it true that, um, that Rome had no police force?
1: Well, certainly Julius Caesar's time, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, what, what's fascinating is that the city of Rome was always considered to be a demilitarized zone. So um, th- th- there had been a history from the King all the way through the early Republic, so 753 to about 509 BC, and then all the way through to Julius Caesar's time, around 100 BC. Um, and there was always a fear of riots and, and this sort of thing, and there they had been some pretty important, um, civil uprisings within the city, and they dealt with it by basically saying, "Look, nobody can carry swords around here." It, 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 they wouldn't have understood the Texan idea of open carry. Let put it that. <laughs> uh, so, 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 the idea was it was too tempting, and um, regulations after Julius Caesar like significantly. In fact, and, and, and uh, there was there was it, all the way through Julius Caesar's time, and the, the Roman army was, was led by very tough. Uh, aristocratic individuals who were basically taking war to other communities and they were bringing the wealth back into the city. But there were always troubles and and fights between the supporters. and from what I gather it was case fisticuffs and clubs and it was rather and sword fights. Um, but the police only came into existence as far as they were considered the police was under Augustus mm-hmm. and they were called the Vigile which is interesting because the modern Italian police are the either the Polizio or the Vigile Urbani and this comes exactly from the Latin Vigili. And these were a paid professional force of non-Roman freedmen, and they were equipped with things like, they, they would probably had a sword, or they would have had a helmet, or maybe a breastplate, something like that. Very, very basic sort of arms and equipment. And, and they really were the people who were supposed to keep the streets free of thugs and this sort of thing. Because again, um, you have to imagine a world where there's no artificial lighting, all right? So, yeah. so the day is governed by the sun. And, and of course it's shorter in winter and it's longer in summer. Um, people will sleep very differently than we do. I mean, they would, they would be going to bed shortly after sundown, you know, because to, to actually pay for artificial light is quite expensive. So the opportunity for criminality at night is quite high. Uh, there were no criminal investigation units, which for example in to the murder, which would go around and tape an area off and actually bring the uh, CSI type of people. That that didn't exist at all.
0: Um, <laughs> well, how, did, how just- did they keep order? There was no police, there were no prisons, there were no jails per se. So how did they keep order in this this city of a million people?
1: Well, um partly there was an undercurrent of threats. Mm-hmm. Um, so so in effect there would if I could describe it this way. Um Justice required, um, effectively, if, if, if it was a criminal case, there were laws uh, which actually specified out, uh, you know, things like capital cases and so on, and there were civil cases as well. And an individual citizen, basically, if they were aggrieved, would actually bring the case to the, the praetor, who was basically the head of justice, and say, you know, I've been beaten up and I would like to get justice. And the point is, they were then responsible having to file the would actually go and get the guy. They would actually get their friends and bring the guy, haul him in front of them. This man was the man who built who beat me up. I want justice, and they would hear the a bit like a pre-trial type uh, situation. And then you agree, and the man would actually have to go to trial. And there would be a jury numbering, by the way, tens or even hundreds of Romans. Uh, and it would typically be in the forums. So it was a very public. The reason why the Romans had these great big um, church-like basilicas uh, in Rome was that's where the court cases were held. So look at it, if you could actually walk down the Roman Forum in in, in Rome, in ancient Rome. you'd Yeah, advocates pleading their cases. This was one of those people. Julius Caesar, in his early, young years, had to do that as well. He had to be a court advocate. It was it, that's why you learn to speak with oratorical profe- uh, prowess, and you would actually learned to be able to coach arguments and to be able to brief witnesses and get the get the people to sort of speak the things. And justice was really in the hands then of the of the jury. And the 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 sentence would be then decided by the praetor and that's how it was done. Um, and interestingly enough, it, it it worked. Now, whether it worked in the totally fair way according to our values is, is another question altogether. But but the Romans actually were rather pleased with their their justice system because it was based on law. There was a court system. There were advocates and defendants, and um and and it was public. So, so there was there was at least the. Since that it
0: was free and fair. Let's see now. Caesar was uh, assassinated in 44 BCE, That's right? But, mm-hmm. but they didn't think of it as 44. That was a, a year given after after Christ, right? <laughs> so when they when they reconfigured time, but what year did they believe it was in 44 BCE? How did Julius Caesar get a name? Get a month named after him?
1: Oh, that's interesting, <laughs> and interesting enough, it's because of Marcus Lento. Mm-hmm. So, the, the year forty four BC was, was 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 a curious one. Back in February, um, Julius Caesar had actually finally been voted the dictatorship, and uh, it was it was a peculiarly Roman idea, which was which was as follows: um, there were moments in, in the history of the country where threats to the existential threats of the society were so great they were prepared to suspend their democratic republic and have one man, just one man, take command. And it was, so we think about Cincinnatus, for example, is a very famous example, um, who did that, who, who helped the Romans defeat a local tribe which was was harassing them, and he went, and famously, after he'd finished, he goes back to his farm. And Washington effectively does this back in the 1700s. So um, in, in the case of Julius Caesar, there, there's an insinuation that he'd been lusting after this place for a very long time, and he finally was awarded it and for about twenty days or something, he was dictator, but not just dictator, but dictator perpetuo, which meant dictator forever, in perpetuity. And this was, for some Romans, way too much like being a king. And that's a separate discussion we can have in a moment. On the day of the assassination, Marcus Antonius is actually in the in, in the building where the assassination takes place. And by the way, it's at the Theatre of Pompey, not actually the Senate House and the forums; it's a different place. You can actually go visit this, by the way, actually, in, I think it's the Agilento in, in, in Rome. People go there on the March they lay flowers, and they have a couple of candlelights. The rest of the other cats
0: just make that Oh, them there, oh they you? still do. Yes. Still, oh, yeah. People still still uh, mourn the eyes of March.
1: Oh yes, and in fact, if you go on the fifteenth of March every year, there will be guys in togas and tunics, and they will reenact this thing for, for the public and for the. For the oh yes, it's uh, it, it's very peculiar. But but the point is that that again is an idea that there are people who still fondly remember this man, even though it's not in anybody's written history. I mean, this man two thousand years ago. But the, the point about the naming of of the month of Julius, which is Julius middle name. His clan name, because there were lots of other people, by the way, who were members of the Julius family. Um, it was an idea that, in fact, that they would replace. I think it was the fifth month of the year with with this with this name. The Roman calendar, by the way, which which was around the time that Julius Caesar uh, lived, was a mess. Was a total mess. Uh, it had been basically a lunar calendar, which which had, I think, it's twenty nine and a half days or something in the year, and 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 it was it was pretty tricky because. That ended up by being uh, one that because of the, we have 365 and a quarter days of the year now, it, it would start slipping. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, over enough years, right, the 1st of March actually wouldn't be the same day. Every year. It, would sort of, it would move around and get later and later and later. And, and added to which, by the way, when, when Romans went over cities, things like obelisks and, and sundials, they, they would come back with them and they said, we've got this new thing it's from Greece it's called a sundial. <laughs> oh that's clever what do we do with it oh well this guy says you stick it in the ground and you read where the sun goes well of course they didn't realise the markings which go on the ground are specific to that place right mm. so all they did was they copied them from the other place and suddenly realised as time went on the time wasn't right <laughs> 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 so the Romans had this really ambiguous idea of time where they had the lunar calendar and had some of these sundials which weren't reading quite right Julius Caesar in 46. By now, he is the Pontifex Maximus, which is which is the highest religious role. Um, he's, he's been to Egypt and he's been around the world, and he's learned from the leading thinkers on these things that what you need is a totally different kind of calendar. And it has to have elements of solar year you in know, as well as lunar. And then it, in, the, the 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 implementation of this finally was what we now understand as the sixty five days with a leap year. And they had 12 months. The Romans up to that point had had 10 months, Mm -hmm. which is why we have December, for example, because that's a a throwback to the old 10 months. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So um, it's very interesting that, again, this is one of the innovations that Julius had, which we still live with. By the way, it's been tinkered with since we've had the Gregorian calendar. We've had all sorts of. Innovations and tweaks ever since, but but by and large, what we have—twelve months and the leap year—it goes back to this innovation of Julius Caesar, which he borrowed, I think, ultimately from the Egyptians.
0: And actually, a lot of the months uh, are named after uh, Roman
1: gods. Yeah. Yes, I have, I have a list here. Uh, so, for example, um, January is the month of Janus, who's mm-hmm. the two-headed god. Mm-hmm. So it's an appropriate place for him to be. He's looking forward uh, to the new year as well as back to the old one. Uh, February is from Februs, which is the month of wages, which I'm sure will appeal to a lot of American views. Uh, mm-hmm. We have Martius, which, of course, is the month of Mars, uh, March. Aprilis is actually after Aphrodite, interesting enough, mm-hmm. uh, which has an Etruscan a connection. Um, then there's Maius, which is of the month of Maya. June uh, is Juno. Mm-hmm. Then uh, Quintilis, which was actually the fifth month of the Roman calendar, is, is now our July. August in, 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 in it was originally the month of Sextilis. It was named after Julius Caesar's heir and successor, Augustus, um, because that's the year that was that was, was on the I was born in. So it's, that was that was how that worked. Um, and then we've got September, which is the seventh month. October is the eighth. Yeah. November ninth, and then December the tenth. But of course, when you uh, insert those those additional months, they sort of move around and they become months. In fact the Romans had to have a thirteenth month every so often, um, in order to try and kinda of address this, this whole mess. So so we have very things <laughs> to thank for trying to give us the discipline that we have now the 12th calendar and belief. So the,
0: the the month of um, July, named after Julius mm-hmm. Caesar, uh, was not something that he named after himself. That
1: No. No, no. no. That, that that's exactly right. It was it was it was actually Mark Antony who in the weeks after the assassination, I think it's hard for us to kind of put our head right, but right. in a sense, um, some of your listeners will be old enough to remember JFK and the great sense of mourning that went with that event. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think if you if you inject yourself into in sort of the, in the mind of a Roman back on, let's say, the 16th, 17th, 18th of March, your world has fallen apart. Right? But, the, but the man that has become effectively the... the, 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 the the most prominent figure in Roman Commonwealth society has now been eliminated. Mm. And the the, the the great structures, the institutions of the state are being rocked. And in fact, what's very interesting is we, we might have the idea, a little bit inspired by Shakespeare, that after assassination, the assassins run, do a runner. No, in fact, they didn't. In fact, what's quite remarkable is they didn't actually do a runner. They, they initially went up to the Capitol Hill because they wanted basically to negotiate their amnesty, and fell to Mark Antony um, to have to sort of liaise with these people. A, a guy called Marcus Lepidus, Emilius Lepidus, had actually risen well with an army, and they encamped actually within Rome. And these assassins were, were scared that, in fact, they'd be slaughtered, and they had to negotiate a deal with Antony and Lepidus in order for them to come down and be allowed to live. And in fact, what happened was, strangely, is that the assassins were basically let off. And for the next year or two that things went back to normal. And in fact the the assassins weren't actually enemies at this point in time. They were actually given provincial commands in northern Italy and Macedonia, really quite plumb position. And you're thinking, Well, hold on, that's not what Shakespeare play shows. Well what happened in the meantime is Caesar's heir, young October, as he's called at this point, is over in um, what we now consider to be Albania. And he receives a letter from his mother saying, "You know, your your your, your great uncle has been assassinated. You must come back." His adopted father, by the uh, his uh, stepfather, actually said, "No, no, no, sir, you've got to stay there." But right? he comes to the conclusion he has to come back. He comes back to Brindisium. He actually then, um, I think, he then uh, stays with Cicero. Cicero tells him everything that he knows at this point. And this man, by the way, Elton is only nineteen at the time. And what initially happens is they work together. And they try to stabilize the Roman state. And in this process, actually, Mark Antony becomes the enemy. It's a bizarre Mm -hmm. set of events. And Cicero works with with this young Octavian, who now, by the way, is building an army because he's got bigger ideas and Cicero's not. No, this is the point. And actually, they effectively declare Antony an enemy. They go to war against him up in the north of of Italy. And uh, basically, they win. (laughs) Antony manages to escape. And through a whole process of events, Octavian begins to realize, actually, you know, you're the enemy. Lepidus is the enemy. We're the good guys. The assassins are the bad guys, and we need to form a group of people. And they formed this, this, this group of three, this, this group of three which we now call a, a triumvirate. And their mission is to reestablish the Republic. And they, they, they sort of brand themselves as being uh, the people who are going to make the old ways right again, you know, <laughs> uh, make Rome great again, I suppose. And... Um, The the subtext of this is they then go hunt down each of the assassins. And it's not until you get to the Battle of Philippi, which is actually what we see depicted in the last part of Shakespeare's play, that the last of the assassins is hunted down and killed. But it's taken about two years. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable that 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 part of the story is very often overlooked. um, Because, in fact, in those heady uncertain, very highly risky charge days that followed Julius Caesar's assassin, a lot of people felt, mm-hmm. you know what, that Julius Caesar had got too big for his boots. He'd actually uh, behaved like a king. we don't like him. But mm-hmm. uh, so the the assassins had a lot of sympathy in their in their favour actually.
0: And he did cross the Rubicon with an army.
1: Which was which was of course a no no. You're not supposed mm-hmm. to do that.
0: That brings us to the end of part one on Julius Caesar. Lindsay explained off the air that in BCE, the Romans marked years by rulers in the first consular year of Cicero, for example, or as we might say, in the second year of Obama's first term. I'll be back soon with part two as we continue our conversation with Lindsay Powell. In the meantime, you can get his book on Julius Caesar on Amazon or any one of his other dozen works on the Roman world. For Beyond Texas, I'm W.F. Strong.